again, dear listener. This is the start of the show. Welcome to Fine, a previously recorded evening of storytelling and otherwise. This episode took place on May 27, 2019 at Toledo here in Vancouver, which is on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. You'll be hearing from some of the excellent lines of writers and comedians we had that night, including Martin Bayless, Aaron Chan, Samantha Nock, and Sonara Geisler. Throughout the episode, you'll hear music from the Starlight Pines, who you can find on iTunes and Bandcamp. The song we started the show with is called Be That Way, from their most recent album, City Lights. I'm your host, Cole Nowicki. To find out more about our upcoming live shows, please visit us at afineshow.com or follow us on the social medias at afineshow. Alright, let's get on with it. Enjoy the show. Up first, we have Martin Bayless. You can catch him the first and third Friday of every month with Improv the Band at Little Mountain Gallery. Here's Martin. Take it away. Yeah! Take me down to the baseball. Take me down to the thing. Come with me down to the baseball rink. Coffee is my favorite baseball drink because it's go Go, go to the baseball. If I don't go, then does baseball still happen? Cause it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, misses, you're done when you do baseball. Go Yankers! Take me down to the baseball. Take me down to the baseball. Baseball hug and a baseball kiss. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck baseball is, cause it's go, go, go to the baseball. Now I'll list all the innings there are. There are one, two, three, Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty. 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 57, 38, 39, 60, 61, 62, 63, 64, 65 innings in total when you do that baseball, yeah! Take me down to the baseball, take me down to the thing. Buy me a pina colada, dude. Hey, now check out my baseball tattoo, cause it's cheer, cheer, cheer for the good thing. 
Now I'll list all the players you need. You need one player in total when you play baseball. Yeah! Play ball! Up next is Aaron Chan. He's a writer from Vancouver whose first book, This City is a Minefield, a memoir collection about growing up gay, Chinese, and Canadian, was released in 2019. Here's Aaron. Yeah, that's fine. You didn't read that second part of the thing I told you to read. It was supposed to be something along the lines of, and I, Cole, want to let everyone know that Aaron is super gay. Here's Aaron. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm not a comedian. Uh, so I was gonna read something serious, but after that, and after seeing everyone in here, I'm not sure if it will, I'm just, I mean, it's not gonna go over badly, but uh, I'm just reading the room. Uh, what does everyone want to hear? Something funny or something? Well, it's serious, but it's like, mo it's poignant. Okay, I'll do I'll do the thing I spent days preparing. Okay. Okay. Thank you. I also had a cider, so I may be slightly tipsy. Um <coughs> So a few years ago, I was having dim sum with my grandparents and my mom. Uh, my grandpa and my mom uh, we're speaking, we're yell talking at each other because if you have ever had dim sum in a restaurant, it can be very, very loud. So I turned to my grandma and I asked her, Le Dima, how are you doing? Uh, and in that moment, I realized that I don't really know my grandma. Uh, I think people have stories about how their grandparents met and fell in love or how they fought in wars or things like that, but I don't know anything about my grandma's life. So I thought, what better time to do it than now in this dim sum restaurant? So I began with a standard question. When did you come to Vancouver? And I expect her to shut me down or tell me that it's none of my business, but instead she goes on in quite amount of detail and it becomes the longest conversation I've ever had with her. My grandma, my pawpaw, uh, came to Vancouver on April 15th, 1982, at the age of 47. She was accompanied by her husband, her two twin sons, and one of her four daughters. My grandpa immediately looked for work, but even a basic dishwasher position was out of his reach. According to my grandma, you couldn't just say you were a dishwasher. You needed certification, which my grandpa did not possess. On top of that, his rudimentary English skills were a constant barrier he came up against and on top of living and navigating in a foreign city. And after two weeks and still no leads, he had had enough. He packed his things and went back to Hong Kong. Since their children were still in high school and college, the financial responsibility to pay for their tuition and their livelihood fell on my grandma's shoulders. Unfortunately for her, she never went to school in Hong Kong since at that time, uh, Chinese society believed that women had no need for an education. Um, so she never had, she, she didn't have a knowledge of English. Uh, and because she never went to school, she never had, um, she never learned to read or write in Chinese either. Um, <clears throat> uh, she, her only, uh, her only, work experience in Hong Kong was as a cleaner at a school where she wiped floors. No resume. Uh, despite her disadvantages, she was optimistic that she would eventually land something. She was a very good seamstress and she was aware that positions for that existed around town and that it was only a matter of time before she uh, got one of those positions. But until then, until that time happened, she wasn't sure how her family would survive. 
So a couple days after getting settled into her home, she was in the kitchen listening to Fairchild Radio, the Chinese radio station in Vancouver, uh, listening for their frequent job announcements. And sure enough, uh, the host mentioned that there was an opening for a housekeeper in North Vancouver. Before they even had a chance to repeat the details, she grabbed the phone and madly tapped out the number and spoke to the man of the house, and she told him that she could cook and clean and promised to work very hard and hoped that it was enough to convince him. And it was. He gave her the address and told her to come in to work the next day. So she officially got her first job in Vancouver. When I ask her about how she felt about the job, she dismisses me. How I felt was irrelevant. What was important was that we now had money, a job, was a job, she said. So the job itself, uh, she was to cook and clean and do the laundry uh, starting from 8.30 a.m. to 6 o'clock p.m., uh, six days a week. Um, <clears throat> instead of an hourly wage, she would be getting paid $600 a month. And considering that the, av uh, the minimum wage at that time was $3.65, she didn't complain. Um, after almost 10 hours of exhausting, grueling work, she returned home to Vancouver to make dinner a second time, this time for her own family. A couple weeks into this new job, one of her sons complained of intestinal pain that grew to be so intense, he was admitted to the hospital. He had appendicitis and he needed to have surgery. Uh, it cost about $100 just to stay in the hospital, and normally this would have been covered through the family's health insurance, but because they were just shy of the three-month probation period, they now had an $800 bill to foot. My grandma obviously uh, didn't have enough money because she had only been working for less than a month, and what money she had saved and brought with her to Vancouver amounted to quite little because of the conversion ratio. Um, so she wasn't sure what to do. She was super stressed and desperate. Um, what she ended up doing was she went to her employers and she gave them an ultimatum. Give me a week off to take care of my son or I will quit. And they refused. So, true to her word, she, she gathered her things and packed her bags and left. Uh, she was sad to go, if only because they had paid so well, but the decision had basically been made for her and she never saw them again. With the help of a friend who worked in insurance, she was fortunate to only have to pay a couple hundred dollars, but she was out of a job again and wasn't sure how long it would take until she found another position. So it was back to listening to Fairchild Radio. And uh, one day, uh, the host mentioned that there was an opening for um, a company named Manpower was hiring workers for a local logging business and interested parties had to go down to their office in Chinatown to apply. After briefly getting lost in Chinatown, which is a whole other story that I don't have time to tell you because I only have 10 minutes, she went to their office and she got that position that day in a drab concrete, concrete warehouse with rows upon rows of sewing machines, she and other immigrant workers worked for $4 an hour sewing and hemming clothes for loggers. The material that she had to work with, including denim, could weigh up to eight pounds, but according to her, that was really the only downside of the job. And it was here that she met her first friends in Vancouver, a job that she would have for the next 21 years of her life uh, until her retirement. There was kind of one major downside though. Oh wait, I cut that out, sorry. Uh, forget I just said that. <laughs> Through all of her hard work, uh, her children went on to have successful careers. Two of them are bank managers, one of them is a secretary, and one of them is an IT consultant manager, which I don't know what that is. Uh, and for my mom, she was able to pursue her passion as a florist. Uh, for almost two decades, she crafted beautiful bouquets in a flower shop. Uh, and her second job, which she eventually took on, uh, was a server at a nursing home, which offered higher pay and extended health benefits. As the years went by, she spent less and less time with her flowers and more time at, this, at the nursing home until in the end, 
she gave up her floristry aspirations altogether in favor of carrying dinnerware to and from a kitchen and developing repetitive strain injuries. And through my, and in turn, my mom's hard work and sacrifices have been for her children. My parents regularly deposited money into education savings accounts for me and my siblings when we were children, with the understanding that we would be going into lucrative fields that promised lots of money and hence easier lives. But from my young age, I knew that I wanted to have a career in the arts. So after high school graduation, I became a singer-songwriter and I performed in cafes and stuff uh, until I realized I wasn't making any progress. So I pivoted and I became a filmmaker for a few years until I also, that also kind of led to a dead end. When I told my family what I was doing, they were horrified. What are you doing with your life? We did not save all this money for you to go and waste on this film and music garbage. You are going to just live under a bridge and ruin your life. S go back to school, get a, get a degree like everyone else, and study something useful and proper, were phrases that I heard over many, many years. Uh, and I still hear it every now and then as I am a writer, but I am cautiously optimistic where things are going. It has taken decades for my family to get where we are now. Have I stunted their progress? Will my kids, if I ever decide to have any, or my kids' kids have to toil away at menial labor like my mom and my grandma once did just to get back into the position of privilege I currently am in? Should I give up my, arti my artistic dreams to live a like my mom to live a comfortable and yet typical life? These are questions that I confront myself with every day. In the dim sum restaurant, Papa pauses for a second. So, work hard in school and get a good job. It doesn't hurt to also go back to school and get a master's degree so you can get more education and get a better job and earn more money. Then she dabs her eyes and looks away. And this is the first time I've ever seen my grandma get emotional. I am the son of women who have worked tirelessly with their hands so that I won't have to. This road that they have paved for me should be a simple winding road with happiness and a life well lived at the end, but instead I have diverted from this road that generations have laid down. Instead, going off-road and down in rocky, unpaved, unpaved path with the hopes and dreams of my ancestors on my shoulders. When, my, when we ask for the bill, I pull up my wallet, but my grandma waves me off. No, no, she says. You can pay when you sell your book and get a big paycheck, she says, chuckling. <laughs> for, the, for many years now, I've been trying to get a, this memoir collection published, and it has been very, very difficult. And even though it will be getting published in a couple months, there is no guarantee that it will do well or that anything will happen. And I'm certainly not expecting a big paycheck after. So it, I'm unsure when, if ever, I will ever be able to treat my grandma for dim sum. And this saddens and terrifies me. I want to be as confident as she was when she set out in a brave new world all those years ago, but the world is so different now, so much more populated and competitive. I want to be able to tell her our lunch date will happen soon, but I'm afraid I will be lying to both of us. Not knowing what to say, I simply nod. Somewhere down this hard road I have chosen for myself, it will happen. It must. So, please buy my book when it comes out. <laughs> so I can treat my grandma. Up next is Samantha Nock. She's a Cree Métis writer, junior front-end web developer, database nerd, and certified cat lady from the BC Peace region. But her family originally comes from Sacatawak, Saskatchewan. 
She's been published in Canadian Art, Shameless Magazine, Sad Mag, Guts Magazine, Prism International, amongst others. Samantha is also the host of the monthly podcast, Heavy Content, and co-organizes a bi-monthly community reading series called Poetry is Bad for You. She cares about radical decolonial love, coffee, corgis, and her two cats, Betty and Jughead. Here's Samantha. Hansi Sam Natsika San Dawson Creek Otsinia Magamatha Misagirawak Otsinianan Kananas Gomit Nawa Musquiamaski Squamish Eski Equa Sailortooth Eski Kananas Gomit Nawa Kakiao. So I'm very nervous. <laughs> Hi, my name's Sam. Um, like Cole said, I grew up in Treaty 8 territory, northeastern BC, but my family is originally from Isla Cross or Sagitawak in our language which is in Northern Saskatchewan. Um, I'm about to really change the mood in here. <laughs> and like not in a sexy way, like in a sad way. So <laughs> that's just my vibe. Um, that's how I get all the dates. Um, I'm just really prolonging reading because I'm reading basically all new material that I haven't read before. <laughs> and it's very um, personal because you know, because poetry is so impersonal. <laughs> Uh, whenever I'm up here, I always think of like that giant cane that drakes you off stage, like vaudeville actors. And I'm just like, Cole, where's the giant cane? Just like, take me off the stage. Anyway, um, I am chatting because I'm uncomfortable. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I actually just have a big ego and just want you all to clap for me. Uh, plot twist. Um, this first poem I'm going to read references one of my good friend Jessica John's poetry. Um, the first couple lines are from her poem, Nahia Skoyawak. Um, I just wanted to give her a shout out. She's not here. She's at a writing retreat in Banff because she's bougie. <laughs> and so talented and deserves to be there. <laughs> um, all right, here we go. I'm not wearing my glasses, so I got a real grandma this one. Jessica says ceremony is wanting to have two wives and one husband and filling them all with so much love that they feel it in the webs of their feet. This is a ceremony I would braid my hair for. And I'd rise with the sun for every day. I fall in and out of love so easily that this ceremony comes naturally. There's my fingertips tracing an imaginary alphabet on your palm. You always ask me consent before you unload your problems on my bedsheets. I wish I could say to you that I want your problems splayed out on my duvet. I want your problems to haunt my pillows. But saying this feels too much like I'm confessing I have feelings for you. And I probably do. But the parameters of what we are feel both infinite and finite. So I, tell, so I say, tell me everything, hoping that I will find myself in there inside of everything. I'm scared to tell you what I really think. You're wonderful and messy and all things that should annoy me but I'm moonstruck. When you leave to catch your bus, I'm happy to be alone, but the feeling in the bottom of my stomach says that maybe I'm not. I want to wake up with you the next morning and drink coffee and make each other laugh some more. I told you my imagination is a blank slate, decorated with nostalgia, but I imagine the feeling of you waking up next to me at least once. Growing up is wanting what you can't have, and it's realizing that people aren't yours to have and being happy with it anyway. I usually have a beer with me, and this time I <laughs> fuck that one up. <laughs> Feels good. Um, this next one is um, about as happy as that one. <laughs> um, I was trying to play with prose poetry, and I'm not a prose poet, I found out. Um, but this also has an Emily Dickinson poem mingled in it. That's what you say, right? Sweet Lord. Maybe I'll just be delivered to the kingdom now. <laughs> I'm a lapsed Catholic, but anyone here want to give me my last rites? <laughs> That's how that works, right? <sighs> Thank you for laughing at that. <laughs> okay. Um, so the Emily Dickinson poem in here is called After a Great Pain, a Formal Feeling Comes. These coastal warm winters have been lulling me into deceitful complacency. 21 felt so old, but that was many different iterations of, yeah, but it's a wet cold ago. And now, <laughs> and now I don't even bother telling strangers I'm from the north. 
The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs, the stiff heart questions, was it he that bore, and yesterday or centuries before. I learned that the way to talk to strangers is in coded secrets wrapped in your birth chart. I'm a Capricorn, Capricorn, I'm a Capricorn is code for I'm an unfeeling bitch. I'm a double Taurus is code for I'm a lazy, cold, hedonistic bitch. My rising and moon change depending on what app I'm using. Some say I'm a Capricorn with an Aquarius rising with a Taurus moon, which is code for I'm a cold, dreamy, hedonistic bitch. I keep telling you that I'm a Sagittarius Venus, hoping that this will be enough reasoning for why I'm detached until I'm not. I wanted to explain why fucking is fun and why fucking is work and why fucking is fucking exhausting. The feet mechanical go round, a wooden way of ground or air or aught, regardless warm, or gr regardless grown of a quartz contentment like a stone. How many more times do I have to wrap myself in tender loving words before I feel loving and tender? My therapist agrees I should start recording what happens when I disassociate. In sessions, neither of us use the word disassociate, dancing around its implications. Instead, I say I feel myself leave my body. I feel a fog roll in and watch myself from the corner of my room. Somewhere I read that we are bones inside a meat sack controlled by a ghost. I wonder when I'm watching myself from the corner of the ceiling if that my ghost is just taking a break. I leave my body when someone raises their voice, when I tell people I love them, when I'm sad, when people are too nice to me, when people are too mean to me. Maybe it's not that I'm a Capricorn cold unfeeling bitch. Maybe my ghost has unionized and gets to take 10 to 15 minute breaks every couple hours. <laughs> I tell my therapist I've been pushing to tell people I care about them. I start comically small, first with a, I like spending time with you, followed by replying to months old messages, followed by hugging more. My ghost stays in my body, first chill, the stupor, then letting go. All right, I have two, <laughs> thank you for that little whistle. Um, I have two left. This one is, mm, or I have three left. I think I have time for three. We'll just auctioneer them. <laughs> um, I literally have no idea how time passes when you're on stage because it feels like 4,000 years. Then everyone's like, that was five minutes. And I'm like, you're a fucking liar. Um, I aged. <laughs> um, I went up 16 and, yeah, anyway. Um, all right, this one's about a one night stand I had with a straight edge white vegan. <laughs> Tinder. <laughs> Fuck up your life with every swipe. Um, Someone just say, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm happy my mom can't see me. I've only had one honest one night stand. We met for drinks, but he was straight edge. So I downed two Americanos and we bought candy and went back to his place. <laughs> yeah. Intimacy and vulnerability without connection is a funny thing. Making out while a David Lynch movie played felt so on brand for my early 20s. <laughs> black metal gig posters were on his painted black walls, and I wondered if they're the kind scary white men like. Uh, there's no smooth way to ask your date that. <laughs> I could tell by the way the night was going, neither of us were really into each other but we were into having company and not being alone and the affirmation of someone kissing your body. I guess this is what you negotiate when you have a one night stand, not to wax poetic about the boringness of monogamy and monotony, but emptiness is a space two people can fill. I sneak out to avoid his roommate, see comics on the coffee table, mid-century accents decorate his basement suite because we're all worried about aesthetics and we're all broke. On the cab ride home, I make a promise to my ancestors that I'll never write the word straight edge vegan one night stand again. <laughs> the soil on the coast smells different than the soil up north. As I get out of the cab, I stop at the edge of everything, bend down, stick my hands into the dirt, grab a fistful of soil, pull it close, inhale. This earth has been here since before Nitsa Pan set one foot in front of the other. The knowledge I have from surviving northern winters has helped me in the city but I'd be lying if I said it didn't, I didn't dream of whiskey jacks and grandpa's alarm clock roaring at CBC at 6 a.m. 
If you lay on your back along the Sakanka, you can see every star. This is where Dad pointed and said, that's the North Star. If you ever lost, you can follow her home. You can't tell your one-night stand that you know there are more than four seasons, that there are in-betweens. You can't bring one-time lovers back to the beginning, tell them where you tell them where we danced into a being. You can tell them thank you and goodbye. A sloppy kiss at the front door sends you off into the night. Nothing is simple for you here, my girl. All right, I got it. I got two more. Is that good? Okay, okay. All right, so this one um, is actually an older one. I'm kind of happy. <laughs> I'm like, oh, this one's good. <laughs> I've read this one before. Um, I'm really just like gearing up for like an emotional finale, so I just pull the trap door. Um, so this one I wrote after uh, a friend and I did a response performance thing to this really amazing uh, Cree Soto Métis performance artist named Laurie Blondo. And uh, my part of the performance was writing a poem about it. And she has this really phenomenal piece called Cosmo Squaw in which she explores um, the dynamics and complexities of being an indigenous woman. And it's amazing. If you ever have a chance to see it, I think you can find it online, actually. I would highly recommend watching it. Laurie is amazing. I did send her this poem, and she never emailed me back, but that's fine. Just add it. I grew stronger. It built character. <laughs> I'm so scared of her. <laughs> She's too cool. Okay. Cookham says that Vix can cure all. She tells us this as she takes her nightly dollop right before she rubs our backs with it and says the Lord's Prayer. Lori. I don't think they know what it's like to have everything only to have it taken away, stuck between the burden of representation and the burden of wanting to be represented. What does it even mean to be a good woman? In Cookham's purse, there are old receipts, a half-empty jar of Vicks, a St. Christopher medallion, old phone numbers, and her sugar pills. In Cookham's purse, there's no pressure to perform, expectations handed down from introduced standards. Lori. Dancing with Patsy is a traditional coming-of-age ceremony that these Munyawak don't understand. You remind me of my mom and auntie's black leather jackets with the fringe, big teased hair, red lips, gold hoops getting ready to go out. Go to the bar, go to bingo, go be young women in their late 20s carrying the burden of being young, of being women, of being a Pudawikasan from Sigitawak in their pockets. In Kukum's purse, she has the same shade of red lipstick that mom wears. She applies a heavy layer and kisses a tissue to blot. Puts the tissue back in her bag, red lips left like fingerprints. Lori, I think Cookham has room in, per in her purse for all of us. So even when they take it all away, we have a place to hide that smells like Vicks, white diamonds, and cigarette smoke. We have a place that can hold us in these expectations we weren't expecting. This is my last one. <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right. So this poem I just wrote, and it's for a near and dear friend, and she's here, and we're both be very uncomfortable when I'm done. <laughs> so don't look at us. Um, she's going to die. I told her I was going to read this. And she's like, that's cool. <laughs> this is the first poem I've ever like written for a person. And that's not that kind of ooh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> For L. You'll probably die reading this, have weird feelings that I'm writing you a poem. I've only written about myself and lovers that don't love me and lovers that are hard to love. And I guess I'm still writing about myself in some way, but to you. And I'm also writing a little bit about you too. I wanted to make this poem rhyme because you love rhyming poems, but I couldn't make it work. Trauma is what happens when you break apart and spend the rest of your life trying to collect the pieces. I didn't know this task would be handed down to me through birthright. I didn't mean for you to have a front row seat. Do you remember when we first spent a little time together, drinking vodka straight from the bottle, listening to the only two records we had, wandering around campus looking for cigarettes, pine cone bees hanging from trees, marking our path back home, echoing the laughter through that coastal night? Seven years is a long time, but also not that long at all. I don't think I've had a friend like you in my life. 
Do you remember when we got into that fight in Chinatown? Late night laughter replaced with late night yelling and crying. The reason we are fighting is not important, or maybe it is. Mistakes are hard to negotiate. You've been there to watch my ends fray, but mistakes, whoop, <laughs> and help me braid them into something new. I started telling you when I want to run. The urge to split my differences and take the back road out comes naturally to me. It's another birthright, learning to leave before you love. You tell me not to, that running affects you too, that my existence matters in yours, and I don't believe you because my existence isn't expected, and do you remember every joke? We are the funniest people in the city. We say this again and again, I believe it. <laughs> this is probably reading like a love poem, and I guess it is. Friendship is the pillar of everything, and hey, the world is ending anyway. It's hard for me to say I love you back. It catches in my throat, hangs off my uvula. But in the city that I've, been, that I've been navigating with the shoes on the wrong feet, you have fended off the bears and become my family. I keep telling you, I want what's best for you. You call me on my shit, and I call you on yours. I let shallow roots run deep. We continue to take chances on strangers. We have more coffee, more laughter. I will dry your hair. Will you keep, will you help me walk through this life with the left shoe on the right foot? Thank you. Our final performer of the evening was Sonara Geisler. Originally grown in the Canadian prairies, Sonara is a writer, performer, and when she's luckiest, a literary game show host and absolutely untrained backup dancer. Her writing and commentary on pop culture, the internet, fat politics, and fashion has appeared in The Guardian, Bust, Poetry's Dead, G's, Sad Magazine, Shameless Magazine, and The Establishment. Here's Sonara. Amazing. Hi, everyone. Uh, I just want to keep it going for Cole. Thank you for organizing such a lovely event. Yeah. And thank you also to fellow performers Sue, Martin, Aaron, and Sam. You're all great. So nice to share a stage with you tonight. Yeah. It is. Uh, so I'm going to read a piece for you that was published in Poetry is Dead. Do some of you know Poetry is Dead magazine? It's an amazing magazine. It's in its last year, so I really encourage you to, to check out the final issues, but also there are back issues online, so they've just done amazing things, and every issue has changed and been different, so please check it out. So this piece is called Do You Know Any Lazy Women? And it's a response to Jem. Do some of you know what Jem is? Uh, it's a 1980s cartoon. Well, you're going to find out about it so <laughs> right now. So there are a lot more women superheroes on our screens, big and small these days. It's a trend that's attributed to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU, that large studios have finally figured out that not just cis white hetero men spend money on pop culture, that our non-dude dollars flow even more freely from our wallets if we see ourselves, our haircuts, and our concerns about being childless, I guess, reflected in the ensemble comic book blockbuster. The most enduring and powerful female character of my childhood is often missing from the annals of female superheroes, Jerrica Benton, or as she's known on stage, Jem. Airing from 1985 to 1988, Jem was a truly, truly, truly outrageous action-adventure cartoon about two rival girl groups, the squeaky clean pop group, Jem and the Holograms, and the cold-hearted punk group, The Misfits. No relation to the actual punk band of the same name. As with all cartoons of the 80s and today, Jem was created primarily to sell toys to children. Each episode included three original music videos with fully produced songs and expansive character wardrobes. And if you want to know a great way to get kids to buy a lot is to have your characters in a cartoon wear a different outfit every episode. So it's worth the investment if any of you are animators and you want to merch that out. Uh, serving glamour and glitter, fashion and fame, Jem was successful and influential enough that Mattel hastily created the wildly inferior Barbie and the Rockers to compete with Hasbro. So there was like a literal battle of the bands in the toy aisle for part of the 80s. Christy Marx, the show creator, who as far as I know is not related to the German socialist revolutionary Karl Marx, 
wrote for G.I. Joe and was pretty sure that girls wanted just as many high-stakes explosions as boys did. Furthermore, she believed that with the right amount of dangerous cliffhangers, boys could and would watch a show about girl bands. Because of this, Jem included way more car chases, hang gliding, and crashing a small propeller plane through a skylight window into a meeting than any other show about women and the music industry, including Nashville, if you've ever seen that show. <laughs> so it's curious to me, when people talk about early women superheroes, they will remember Agent 99 from Get Smart or 60s live-action Batgirl, or maybe even Samantha from Bewitched. But Jem never comes up, even though she was clearly a stunt queen. And hers was the third most watched animated show on television with 2.5 million viewers weekly. It's a fact that Jem clearly satisfies the most basic requirements of the what makes someone a superhero checklist. I'm gonna give it to you. Point number one, she has a secret identity. She is Jerrica Benton, owner and manager of Starlight Music, an adoptive mother to somewhere between six to 12 orphan girls by day and most nights and a lot of the time, really. And she's also Jem, international pop star and front woman of Jem and the Holograms by, by night, but at various times throughout the day and a lot of the time, really. <laughs> Number two of the what makes you a superhero checklist is that you have to have a superpower. So Jerrica's gift is access to an artificially intelligent supercomputer called Synergy. Synergy was a literal gift from Jerrica's late father, and she can communicate and project complex holograms through remote microprojectors in Jerrica's earrings. So when Jerrica needed to become Jem, she would grab her earring and say, it's showtime, Synergy. <laughs> yeah. So you might argue that her power is a bit dubious because it's man-made and it's not magic or a genetic mutation, but there are plenty of examples of hero-enhancing tech in superhero stories. Tony Stark has his Iron Man suit. Wonder Woman has an invisible jet. The difference is that Jem uses her holographic superpower to sustain multiple full-time jobs. <laughs> We don't view Jem's actions as heroic because taking on martyr-like levels of work is a societal expectation of all women, <laughs> including normal human women whose jewelry cannot produce holograms and assist them only with looking foxy and well-accessorized. Did you know that Jem once transformed into a hot pink surfboard? <laughs> I cannot remember if someone actually picked her up and tried to surf, like using her holographic body, but it still strikes me as the ultimate image of a woman trying to be all things to all people. <laughs> like a random surfer was like, Boomer, totally busted my board, it's the big goon of surf meet. And she was like, it's showtime synergy. <laughs> turns into a surfboard. Uh, do you know any lazy women? You might laugh like it's a setup, but it's actually a serious question. Women who ignore deadlines, who quit things, who luxuriate in piles of dirty laundry, who eat frozen burritos off a warped Tupperware lid, women who do nothing but shrug or say, dunno, women who take days, months, years to text back, women who sit unwashed and undressed, playing first-person shooters and doing bong rips for six, seven, eight, nine, ten-month stretches while their boyfriends work overtime and grocery shop and pick up house and mail thoughtful and timely birthday greetings to members of their girlfriend's extended family on her behalf. Look around. Look at your life. Do you know any women like that? As a kid, I wondered why Jerrica, this powerful woman leading a double life, a woman who had mastered the 1980s version of having it all, only ever has one kind of crappy boyfriend. His name is Rio and he exists to fight with Jerrica and Jem about how busy she always is. Every conversation becomes an argument that ends with him storming off, usually after kicking over a beautiful potted plant. <laughs> He has a brand. Uh, Bruce Wayne and Peter Parker pursue civilian girlfriends while Batman and Spider-Man enjoy rooftop flirtations with other women. 
Why shouldn't Jem enjoy the perks or the potential support of two partners? Before I was born, my mother was engaged to two different men on two different continents at the same time. <laughs> Ultimately, she only married one, the wrong one. <laughs> or I guess the right one, as far as I should be concerned, because I got to be alive in reading this essay to you uh, today. <laughs> And when I ask her about this, she says it only made sense for a woman such as herself to accept every marriage proposal she received. Was she joking? I'm not sure. <laughs> Did it ever bother Jerrica that Rio was unknowingly cheating on her with a woman who was just her holographic makeover? <laughs> Maybe she was flattered. Maybe she felt like he really sees me. Did she think it was romantic? He wants me, twice. <laughs> now older, having spent more than 20 years juggling work and school and art and personal and professional relationships, many of them with men, I suspect that tending to the emotional needs of only one man as two women was Jerrica's version of a coffee break. <laughs> a pseudo-sick day. When success means maintaining two separate identities and two full-time jobs, one stable-ish romance is the closest a girl comes to taking a spa day. You must work twice as hard to get half as much. Do more, be more, learn more, move more, make more, love more. Head down, push through, don't cry in the office, don't cry over boys or shit pay or that girl in the rival band who literally threw you under a bus. Be your own best girl, be the Jerrica to your gem, the gem to your Jerrica. Be the glamorous pink-haired fantasy and the take-no-prisoners blonde executive and not to mention in your spare time the gentle and generous foster mother to 12 orphans. <laughs> this is what Jem showed me. This is what we tell our daughters. You can do anything. But how often do we hear that as you should do everything? You have no choice but to be extraordinary. I want you all to try something for me. Imagine sitting in your living room, just sitting. You ignore phone calls, texts, emails, letters. Your hair mats. Your face cakes with oil and sweat and then dust. Your ass actually fuses to your couch. A Netflix prompt flickers on your television screen. Are you still watching your life pass you by? It is performance art. The title is self-care. <laughs> this isn't art, your male critics will say. It is a fantasy, so your art's being reviewed. <laughs> she is no artist. She's just a lazy sack of shit. We do this all the time. It's called The Weekend. Your reviews from women, and again, this is a fantasy, will not be much more favorable, but one will be generous. This piece could be called Permission, the reviewer, a former female friend you have deeply disappointed will write. In flaunting her total embarrassing lack of creative drive and outright refusal to even try to address the basic requirements of any artistic form or genre, Sonera, or your name, displays the confidence and entitlement of a feckless, mediocre white man without reaping any of the rewards. She does, however, remind us that there is always room for all women to fail that much more spectacularly. Do you know any lazy women? All right, that is it. That is the end of the show. Thanks again to all the performers, the Starlight Pines, the Lido for having us, Matt Crisco for recording us, CITR for playing us, and you, dear listener, for listening. We'll leave you with the Starlight Pines. Face it. Losing baby
been listening to Fine on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam territory at the University of British Columbia.